What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Whitmire. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Flowcast Inactive CPA. Uh, welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Balance Sheets podcast, where I kind of talk about whatever I want, finance, accounting, entrepreneur related. Today, we have a very exciting episode. Uh, it's not every day that you close your Series D round of funding, and we wanted to do something a little unique for this one, where we actually hand the podcast over to John Siegel, our content creation manager, and he's going to interview me about fundraising. So welcome aboard, John. Excited to chat. Thanks, Mike. So could you give us an overview on the Series D? So yeah, I'll, I'll start with the numbers here. So we closed 110 million at a post money valuation of 1.2 billion. That's uh, so that makes us LA's most recent unicorn, which is a really fun milestone to have achieved. Uh, but more more importantly, the round was led by Meritech uh, Capital, which is an incredible fund up in the Bay Area with just a gold reputation. And our the board member joining is George Bischoff, who has a lot of experience in SaaS and even within the fintech SaaS world as well. So really excited to get Meritech involved and then. I don't even know how we did it, but we pulled two more funds in that are great. Uh, Redpoint is joining the round and Sapphire Ventures is also joining the round. More just great SaaS DNA throughout those investors and will provide a lot of value for us as we scale and grow here. So really excited to bring on the capital, the new partners. And the exciting part about bringing them on is really a lot of alignment around how to spend the money. We're all, we're all in agreement that we have a big opportunity with our product, a big opportunity with the market. So we want to invest heavily in our solution, expand that out, uh, and also double down on international expansion. We're seeing a lot of success there. And so opening up more Flowcast offices around the world. So Mike, when, when did you kick off the, this round of fundraising? Um, well, I didn't really kick it off. That's one of the more interesting points of this fundraising is we were, you know, heads down executing, do, doing our thing at Flowcast. And then we got pinged proactively by, uh, by a couple of VCs. And what I found out is that behind the scenes, they had been talking to their portfolio companies who are on Flowcast already and just getting incredibly positive feedback from them. Like, you know, to quote and we've never heard more positive feedback about a software application from their portfolio company. It was just like every single company they talked to love Flowcast and we'd buy it again and we'd pay more money for it and all this good stuff. And so they got really excited about what we were doing, got a lot of conviction around it and reached out to us proactively to start a round of fundraising. You've talked in the past about how you keep in contact with investors on a regular cadence. Uh, yeah. What was that cadence like over the last six months? And when did you start to see an uptick of, of inbound interest in investing in Flowcast? So it's been, um, I'll have updates either every quarter or maybe every six months, just kind of depends on the, the fund. And then as we're heading into fundraising, I'll reach out to them to proactively give an update and say, hey, we're uh, you know either getting hit with term sheets or we're thinking about going out to raise another round of funding. So either quarterly or every six months, um, and what happened was I basically, we got reached out to by a fund that we liked a lot. With that, I have relationships with other funds we've been speaking with. And so I reach out to them and say, hey, we're, we are going to engage in a fundraising cycle. Would you like to take a look? And then it goes pretty quickly from there because they know me, they know the business, they have an update as of at most six months ago. And so I'm only updating them on six months worth of information. And so they're generally you know, ready to work together quickly as long as it makes sense. So that kind of, yeah, maintaining relationships worked really well. And I reached out to like the top eight to 10 firms that I thought would be a good fit for Flowcast. And we uh, made our selections from there. Can you talk about that that timeline? I don't need you to go into to date, specific dates or anything, but once you, once you decided to actively start fundraising, how long did it take to pull together the entire round? Um, so from first email about starting a fundraising cycle through signing term sheet, I think was a five week process. 
Got it. Is that is that typical for for a company the size of Flowcast going into a Series D? Um, I think in today's venture market, there it's hard to define what's typical or or what's not. There are companies where you might never even have talked to this fund, and they're going to give you a term sheet for two hundred million dollars at a five billion dollar valuation. Like like wild stuff is happening out there. I think if you look at Flowcast, we're a stellar company. We have great things going for us. I was picky about the investor I wanted to work with. So we could have just signed a term sheet after three days if we really wanted to, but I wanted to go back, chat with all the folks I've been having conversations with, kind of elongated it. So I would say in today's environment, we were on the shorter end, but there are crazier things happening out there because the investment community is just so over the top right now. You talked about uh, company or, or VCs proactively reaching out to their portfolio companies to, to vet Flowcast to, to understand whether it's it's a, it's a good opportunity or whether they should stay put uh, on their on their investment strategy. But uh, what was your due diligence diligence process like when you were when these VCs were reaching out to you or you were doing the research to reach out to these VCs? So it's mostly I I knew these I knew them already so I had like personal one-on-one relationships with them and then when you start to talk about fundraising it's about really doing your back channel references and and talking to the people trying to get on the phone with the people that they don't want you to be on the phone with if you know what I mean trying to get that like that what's the what's the negative stuff I think I can get out of it so when we're speaking about a fund like George and Maritech for example first thing I'll do is I'll talk to our board and our investors like Hey, I'm chatting with George and Maritech. What do you think about him? Nothing but rave reviews, right? Like, oh, Maritech's an incredible fund, gold standard. George is great. Everyone loves working with George. I'm like, okay, that sounds great. And then um, I ask the fund to put me in touch with some of the CEOs that they've worked with. And specifically, I'll say, hey, I would love one CEO where things went really well. You put money in and it was all up and to the right and everything was good from there. And then if I could talk to one where you put money in, and there were some issues afterwards. I want to see how you handled a downside case. And then for this round of funding, a really, really important thing for me was specifically understanding how they reacted to COVID, how this board member responded after COVID hit. And so uh, what I would do is they would introduce me to those CEOs. I'd have those calls and I have a very formulaic reference call structure. Like I go through the same exact five questions uh, with each of the CEOs to understand, um, you know, I get consistency and kind of understand how the, the board members are going to react. And coming off of those calls, I was like, I could not wait to work with George. I mean, he handles, he makes good investments. So oftentimes it is up and to the right and you're feeling good about everything. But he put me in touch with uh, actually two CEOs where things didn't go perfectly afterwards and talking to them through that experience was awesome and made me feel really good about um, working with him. The way he handled COVID, he and his fund handled COVID with their portfolio companies, I thought was just spot on. And then beyond that, I start doing my own back channel references, right? Like, oh, who are all the CEOs at Maritech and who are blah, blah, blah. And I start reaching out to everyone. And so I had a lot of conversations about what it's like working with them. It's a huge decision for us, right? So I need to be vetting this in the background. So combination of our board, what's their market reputation, asking them to put me in touch directly with people and then back channel referencing as well. When you were talking to the, the Flowcast board about potential investors coming on, obviously they were a part of this process all along the way, and imagine the communications was were, were very clear. Um, what did what what typically were their reactions to if you floated the idea of a new potential board member and their venture capital firm? What was their response, and what kind of feedback were you looking for from them? It's, I mean, I was looking for feedback like reputationally. What's it going to be like working with this person? What's it going to be like working with this firm? Because it 
this world is fascinating. As you move up in the investment world, and there are only so many firms out there that cut checks of the size that we're looking at, everyone starts to know each other that much more. And so you just get, it's such a small world that it's really easy to get feedback. And so oftentimes it was just shut down by the current board of directors because we have, you know, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but we have like a great board dynamic. Board meetings for us are a pleasure. They're smooth. The team's great. Everyone's collaborative. You don't have a bunch of jerks in there, like making it into a terrible board meeting. So keeping that dynamic in place was really important for me. And it's really important for our current board because they like that dynamic. And so, Hey, what do you think about this partner? What do you think about this firm? I'll get feedback. Like, uh, you know, they don't provide a ton of value. The firm might be a little overbearing or yeah, they'll say that now, but they're never going to actually show up and they'll only show up when things go poorly and it's not going to be a fun conversation. So you start to get the like real behind the scenes um, vibe from that because firms and people just develop reputations over the years. Well, let's go back to, um, I guess, the, 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 the basics of the funding. Did you have an idea for how much money you wanted to raise at what valuation and how flexible was that when you were speaking with these different venture capital firms? Uh, well, I said, you know, a hundred million feels right to me. Not, I don't know where that came from. It's a nice round number. And it's not like I have a, a plan laid out by the dollar of how we're going to spend that money or anything. It was basically like, all right, what's the next good round size and what's going to make it such that we're not going to be needing to take on capital for a very long time, like through an IPO at this point and a hundred more than more than gets the job done. So that's fine. Valuation, you know, our goal is to become a public company. And so with that, we want to get the valuation as high as possible. That's really our, our aim because of our ultimate goal as a business. And so I sat there and I really didn't see a need to do this for at all. And so I was just kind of held pretty firm on my valuation. And when we got to 1.2, I was feeling good about it. That seemed like pretty minimal dilution to put that amount of capital in the bank and really march forward um, in a big way. And so once I got to that area, I was like, man, this you know, as much as it kills me to give up some equity right now, it's that this is going to really be good in the long run. And so a bit 1.2 felt right. Let's do this. And, and when you, when you put a cap on this round of funding, was it, was it because you got to hundred million and that was it? You closed, you took, stopped taking calls and everything, or at what point in time did you just, you decide, all right, we're done here. Let's move forward with this. We got to a hundred. We then had more people wanting to come in and and get, you know, put more capital to work. And we had some strategic investors. And so I internally was in my head, I was like, I'm not going over 110. So I'll find 10 million bucks to carve out for some people I think would be strategic and really helpful for us. And it was a purely a selfish mental barrier. Was it 110? Because I didn't want to come down on the pre-money valuation anymore. You mentioned those those strategic uh, uh, investors, and that was actually what I was going to ask right after this. Uh, at what point in time did you decide you wanted to carve out part of this round for specific strategic investors and how did that work if you're if we're not talking about a traditional vc firm and we're talking more about either a, a company's firm that they're 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 uh, an established tech company and they've established a firm for investing uh, or individual investors how did that how did that work out and how did you communicate with them yeah so um are two other funds that invested in the round i don't know if you'd consider them strategic but they are they got involved because of how we just kind of made it happen as Redpoint Ventures and Sapphire uh, partners as well. And I love them because of the deep like SaaS expertise. We get really great board observers uh, from both. So Logan Bartlett and Rajiv Dom are both joining our, our board or their board observers for us now. And uh, they kind of each bring their own, their own flavor to the conversation and their benefits as a fund. 
Then on the strategic side, like purely strategic, we're uh, Coupa Ventures is also investing in our round of funding. And we've also uh, taken angel investments from the CEO, CFO, and VP of finance as well. So they're they are a client of ours. They love Flowcast. And so when the investment opportunity presented itself, I made it available to them and they wanted to put some of their, their money uh, to work as well. And the way that happened was it was actually dumb luck. That was a timing thing. They happened to reach out to me, I think like four weeks into the process. And they also know Meritech really well because Meritech funded Coupa back in the day. So they have a relationship from that. And so this is another example of Meritech just being like a great investor and a great partner. Uh, I was talking to Coupa and I said, hey, like I've already signed the term sheet. We're, we're closing this thing. Like, I don't know if you have enough time to get caught up to speed on the business and do your diligence and how comfortable you are. But I think George would help you and would share some of his, his information if it helps you get up to speed faster. And sure enough, like George shot over all the notes that they had from client calls that they had done with us, all the financial due diligence they had done, everything in the background. So they were nice enough to help Coupa just get like a really solid due diligence packet. <clears throat> Coupa reviewed it. And a week later, they were like, yep, we're in. And they decided to put money in from there and got in as part of the, the close of the, of the funding. So yeah, just like another great, a lot of VCs wouldn't do that because it's competitive. A lot of VCs would probably be like, oh, instead of giving them 3 million bucks, how about you give me 3 million bucks so I can own more of the company? But like speaks volumes to George and Meritech's reputation that they not only didn't do that, but they helped get the new fund up to speed quickly to get them involved because they see that they had value to the business. I was going to say, I was expecting more cutthroat behind the scenes tactics and stuff like that, but it is Coupa and Meritech and they are a portfolio company. So and it kind of makes sense to work with them. Well, and they're, they're great people. And I think this is a, this is what happens as you go at the higher, higher level funds. You'll find there are, there's a divergence with like really incredible reputation people out there who always do what's right. And then you get into some of that cutthroat type environment. And so it's really about like, yeah, avoiding the cutthroat person who's not going to do it the right way, but get the great person on board who's collaborative and wants to like build a big business. Can you talk about Rajiv and, and Logan? We've spoken separately about them and, and they're both very, uh, they, they've had a lot of success in, in, in investing, but talk about them specifically and, and what they're bringing to the table. Yeah, so I'll start with uh, Rajiv and Sapphire. So I've actually known Rajiv for like five years at this point. Uh, we haven't been able to sync up on a round of funding either because of timing or just because of Rajiv saying no to me. So just so everyone knows, Rajiv said no couple of rounds ago and has left some money on the table, but better, better late than never, I suppose. Um, what I love about Sapphire is, you know, they, like I said, SAS, if you look at their portfolio companies, the big track record of success, they have some serious winners that they associate themselves with. And when I did the CEO back channel call on them, what I found most appealing was Sapphire actually has an internal recruiting function. And so they help you recruit executives to the team. And that's one of the hardest parts of my job is recruiting executive level people over to Flowcast, right? And so a fund that had straight up does that internally is not very common. And in the back channel, a lot of them will pitch this. A lot of them will be like, oh, we have great recruiters we could leverage, blah, blah, blah. They're all vetted by our firm. None of them have it internally. And when I was speaking with one of the CEOs, he said that Sapphire placed eight out of their 10 executives. And I was like, whoa, okay. So they actually deliver on that. Okay. That's something really valuable to Flowcast. So you pair like Rajiv's a great guy. The firm knows SAS really well. And then they plug in a recruiting function. That's all very appealing to me on the red point side. 
I'll admit I've kind of been like a Red Point fan from the early days of their blog has driven a lot of founding Flowcast uh, here as well. So just like learning about the world through Red Point uh, has been interesting. And uh, it was really a, again, SaaS background, but on a personal level, I really like the the partner that we're bringing on as a board observer. So Logan Bartlett, younger guy, uh, making a name for himself in the VC world. And I like working with kind of the up and coming hungry you know, VCs out there because they provide more help than perhaps some more experienced people do. They're a little more hands-on. And so personal relationship, really liked him. Um, and Red Point's a great fund and yeah, great terms. Uh, once, once the found or what, once the, the, the round was, was established and in place and you weren't taking any more funds, what's the behind the scenes work from, from a Flowcast perspective that needed to go, that needed to happen, whether it was additional due diligence or contracts. I mentioned legal was working long hours in addition to quarter end to the, working with this. Yeah. We closed it during a quarter end also, which is tough. Well, I mean, what's what's nice about uh, how we do the the fundraising is, as you would expect, right? We're a very buttoned up operation. So any numbers you need, any metrics or whatever, that's readily available, and we can just send you whatever we sent last week out, right? So it's like we don't we're not in some scramble to pull together our due diligence package information. It's already reviewed during the term sheet process. So by the time they've signed the term sheet, it's not like hey, we need to audit your financial statements or we need to make sure this is actually a real customer and you're not lying to us. It's not that. It's really on to, it goes to the lawyers and who knows how much money we're paying at that point. But it's it's a lot of uh, actually external legal parties driving this, doing most of the work with our internal counsel, Eric, and myself sort of like pushing them to get this done quickly and being there to answer high-level questions. But it really is you like, once the term sheet's signed and all the main points are negotiated, you farm all the details out to external counsel because there's a lot of documentation that occurs as part of it. Like, you know, I'm talking like thousands of pages of legal documents are getting changed in the background and I'm not smart enough to do that stuff. So they just, they handle it for us. Looking back at this round of funding, as opposed to let's say the series C, cause that's the most recent one. Um, how did you, how did some of the successes or failures not failures necessarily, but uh, drawbacks or things that you might have overlooked. How did they impact this this round of funding? For the Series C? Yeah, for the Series C. Well, Series C, um, it was the Norwest, uh, kind of a similar situation. Like Norwest is such a great firm. Sean Jacobson is a great partner. And I had known him for a while also. So I, I had known Sean since the Cornerstone days. And so there wasn't as much of a personal relationship to get up and running from there. I've only known George for probably like 18 months at this point. So when we were chatting with him, I felt more of a need to do due diligence around him. And since we were considering, like this time we were looking at four or five different funds to go with. And so it was just a lot more back channel referencing for me. Whereas before, um, I was such a big fan of Sean and Norwest that we basically said like, hey, we're going to go out and raise in a quarter if you want to just give us a term sheet now, I'd love to work with you. And so there wasn't like due diligence. It was just like, Hey, can we get to a fair price and sign this thing and then move on with our lives from there and start working together. So very different uh, setup, but yeah, man, like both were kind of equally quick because it wasn't truly a full like outbound sales, like rev, like investment cycle and go raise money here. They were both pretty aggressively inbound. I just was way more exclusive with Sean because I knew he'd be a, great firm was giving us a good price and uh and he was a great partner to work with 
Uh, what are you expecting from from George now that he's he's joining the board? Uh, obviously, Rajiv and, and Logan are joining as as observers. But what do you expect from from George now that he's a member of the Flowcast board? I expect uh, him to be a really good sounding board for us and pushing us more on product than we've been pushed so far. So if you look at our board, um, our pre-George board, a lot of go-to-market focus, a lot of sales and marketing and business development and metrics and financials and all that stuff's fun and everything. But you know, reality is you build a massive business by nailing multiple product lines and being successful in the product side of the house. And that was one of the things I loved about uh, all of the funds that we brought on, like Meritech, Redpoint, and Sapphire, more product focused than any of the other funds I was speaking with. And that actually came through at our first board meeting. We had our first board meeting last week with George and Logan and Rajiv on the line, and they only talked about product. It was so cool. It's the most product discussion we've had at a board meeting in literally the last five years. And it's cool because they're investing in the future product lines that we're out there pitching and they're here to make sure it happens with us and be collaborative and help prioritize, help figure out how to go to market, all kinds of different areas. And so, yeah, it's pushing us on product. That's my expectation for literally all three of them at board meetings is to really be laser focused on product and prioritizing, building it quickly, getting it to market, having happy customers, renewing, all that good stuff. Before an idea gets to the point where you need to fill in the board or first your co-founders and the board, who would you say is in your inner circle? Are we talking about like the genesis of an idea before it's actually even to the point where you want to say it out loud? Who, who are the first people that you go to to say, look, I've got this idea. What do you think? It's uh, Chris and Colin, for sure. It's a uh, co-founders. I mean, it's that's what we love, man. It's like when you when you think about what we do, our skill sets, the area that we all overlap from a Venn diagram is product we all we all love product and so it's definitely to those two guys first i can't imagine that and it always all happening at quarter end too which is at quarter time. end <laughs> perfect timing yeah uh, so you talked about this a little bit beforehand and obviously the plan is to use this money to hire a bunch of people and to build out our line of products but let's go with the hiring function right now obviously sales is a, is a huge need for us right now just because we're expanding so rapidly but if you could go into to our main main priorities for for hiring, especially with this this funding in the bank now, where are we where, what are we looking at? Yeah, I I was thinking, um, and I I don't know if we'll cut this from the podcast or not. I'm curious to see if this if this makes it. But I was thinking more about my board game strategies as well. And stick stick <laughs> with me. So like I love Risk, right? Risk is one mm -hmm. of my favorite board games. I'm not all that risky in Risk, so I like to build up my armies, build up. You know, I like to get South America own that you get your armies every every turn and you kind of build up and then you have a good angle of attack from that area so i kind of view like whenever we take on fundraising i view it as like okay let's take this money and build up build up build up and then we'll be to a point where we can kind of like unleash it through account executives and attack the market and so what that means for us now is hiring a lot of engineers and a lot of product people right now to build out more of that product suite that will then put us in a position to hand more products to our sales team so they can go to market more efficiently. But in the meantime, what we'll do is we'll get the engineers in here. We'll build out all those new product lines we've been talking about. We'll hire out the BDR function in a really aggressive way. And that will then, the BDRs will help fill the top of the funnel. We'll hand new products to account executives. At some point next year, we'll promote a lot of BDRs into account executive roles. They'll have a lot of products to go sell. And that's when we attack and hit the market hard. So it's gonna be kind of like taking this money, building up, building up, building up for the next year. And then I'll bet you, if you fast forward 12 months and look at our growth rate, it's gonna be like 
absurd. I mean, I mean, we've been doing absurd, but I'll bet you it's going to get even better when you fast forward 12 months. Obviously, we just expanded into into Europe and, and uh, Africa and whatever else EMEA stands for. Uh, with our, yeah, we're in, we're in with, Europe. With, yeah, with, with a, an actual physical office in, in London. Um, also, we shared the news that, that Flowcast has changed its in-person office policy. Uh, you're an LA guy. I'm an LA guy. Flowcast is going to be an LA company. But can you can you describe just how how this how this shift not really shift it's it's and I guess we're evolving as a company how that impacts who we are as a company how you see it at least yeah I mean I think we're like you said we're still headquartered in in LA I think Southern California is a big part of our our culture and just part of Flowcast and the DNA um, but as we go you know we changed our hiring policy like. Some very good arguments were made when we had discussed going back to the office and requiring that, and particularly from people in Los Angeles. And so I feel like accommodating that request to remain remote, even if you live in the LA area, it's like a big step in the right direction for us. And we'll actually help maintain culture, right? Because I don't, we don't need people to be on site. They can do their thing. And throughout COVID, I would say our HR department and this culture team has done a great job of like making people feel connected. We do those virtual events. I don't feel like there's been a major drop-off. And so we found that we can maintain a lot of that through COVID. And so I'm confident we can maintain the culture and consistency going forward. In terms of Europe, um, if we had not sent over like seven people at Flow who are already at Flowcast and have been here for five, six, seven years each, then I'd have more concerns about kind of spreading the Flowcast culture out in Europe and it not being consistent with how we are in the United States. But yeah, having like the, the people, the caliber of people who went over there from Flowcast who have been at Flowcast headquarters for such a long amount of time. I'm like very confident that that culture is going to go over to Europe and spread, spread accordingly. Right. And it's really important given how much of a focus we have on our customers. All right. Where do you see Flowcast a year from now? Ideally. A year or from maybe, now. No, let's go. Where do you see Flowcast a year from now? Realistically. Realistically. So if the, I'll put my kind of conservative accountant hat on for this one. Let's say that a year from now, we're launching the product lines that we're talking about right now. I think that's being conservative, saying that they'll kind of hit the market in a year from now. We will have hired really well in EMEA, and we've scaled out the BDR and the account executive uh, functions here in LA. So I think we're or across, across the United States, not here in LA. We're going remote. We're open to people working from wherever they want. Um, so hiring out those teams, and in a year... We'll have those product lines. We'll have scaled sales teams, both in the United States and over in EMEA. And we'll be starting to sell all of our new product lines and go broader uh, across the office of the CFO. And growth rates, probably about the same. We're probably still doubling at that point. But because of the new products, we're looking at actually further accelerating that growth rate, despite us becoming bigger as a gross revenue company, which, by the way, is what's happening right now. We've scaled our revenue and our growth rate at the same time. Perfect. Uh, well, I think that's probably a good place to to end our conversation. Um, thanks for allowing me to co-host this podcast with you this week, Mike. And uh, would you mind if I did my my mic intro uh, no. imitation? No, go for it. I want to hear it. All right. What's up, everybody? This is Mike Whitmire, co-founder and CEO of Flowcast, inactive CPA, and this is Blood, Sweat, and Balance Sheets. Well done. There you go. I only heard it two or three thousand times. <laughs> two or three. Got it locked in. The key well is done. in the inactive CPA. It's the inactive CPA. Oh man, I'm so glad I randomly said that one night. Mm-hmm.